Welcome to this week's LPM podcast. This is Jack Tralisa, Managing Editor of LPM Magazine. Today I'm one-on-one with Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council at the University of Florida. The LPRC plays an important role in the retail loss prevention industry, providing evidence-based research that is used by retail executives to help them choose technology and strategies to reduce loss and increase retail sales. Listeners will learn how the LPRC came into being and how it evolved over the past two decades. As always, please review us on your favorite podcast platform and send us your feedback and suggestions to podcast at lpportal.com. That's podcast at lppportal.com. We are LP Magazine, and since 2001, we've been the leader in providing content and education for the loss prevention and asset protection industry, and we are known as the voice and authority of the LP community. Each episode, we'll be sharing and discussing the latest in trends and current issues related to all things retail and profit protection. You're listening to the LPM Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Reed Hayes, Director of the Loss Prevention Research Council. Reed is also an ongoing contributor to LP Magazine with his evidence-based LP column in each issue of our print magazine. Welcome, Reed, and thank you for uh, your time today. Well, thanks, Jack. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, thank you for appearing on uh, LPRC's Crime Science Podcast. Uh, I appreciate that. It was fun, and uh, I'm looking forward to today's uh, talk as well. So I'd like to get started uh, with a little bit of personal background for you, where you were born and raised, uh, where you went to college, some of your early career. Well, sure. Um, Let me see. Um, Seventh generation Floridian. um, I think that's fairly rare. Um, And so, um, you know, excited about that. It's a different Florida now than when I was coming up as a kid. Our family's originally from the North Florida area where I am now, but we were by and large raised down in Central Florida, but maintained a lot of contact we, with uh, and worked on the farm and with cattle in North Florida, North Central Florida, um, the Gainesville area, um, as well as we had cattle uh, down in East Orange County, Orlando area, but Orange County over toward the river, the St. Johns River. Um, went to uh, Winter Park High School um, in Central Florida and uh, then ended up in Gainesville at the University of Florida in uh, criminology, criminal justice. During my college, I went two years first to Valencia College in Orlando before I transferred. And I had the opportunity at 18 to become a store detective at a huge um, salary of $2.85 an hour. That was minimum wage. It was wild, to say the least, as far as a lot of resisting shoplifters. Somebody asked me about the wildest, and I said, well, that was actually my first apprehensions. We won't go into all the details, but it was crazy. It was bloody, and um, and it destroyed two full departments in Robinson's Florida Department Store in Orlando. So, uh, But the front, I also got the opportunity, though, to go uh, as a civilian to the Orlando Police Academy and graduated in 1978. Um, Seems like yesterday, but it clearly wasn't. And uh, it was fantastic training. It was much longer, several weeks longer than the uh, state and federal requirements uh, as far as the hours of training that were required to be a sworn law enforcement officer. And you, you listen and learn about, you see what's going on right now. But the training even back then that we had was so extensive, you could not use chokeholds. And this was in 78. You had to survive and get home against some pretty violent people. But uh, they trained you very, very 
sharply on how to do that. And, and even pulling over people in a police car, we would go out to the Orlando airport and we'd have a dozen police cars, but we would practice and we might have 45, 50 people in the, in the our academy class. And everybody got to pull over the cars multiple times and then watch as everybody else did with the instructors there. And, and you can imagine everything that could and does happen they simulated it and you're pretty amped up. So you really got a fantastic experience uh, on dealing with every kind of situation, trying to pay you off, trying to come on to you, compliant, uh, running, shooting at you, you know, attacking you, uh, trying to back over you and, and on and on. So that was, I think, formative and then came up to UF because I'd been to the academy, I got to do a couple stints undercover in a drug unit uh, because I was 19 and a half, 20 at that time and looked 16 and a half maybe. And so they put me into a high school that had a meth problem. I was a student. It was crazy. We wrapped everything up and I got a, a lot of exposure to a lot of interesting things and learned how to be an undercover law enforcement officer and what you have to overlook if you might see things where people might be intimidated or injured and how you handle that. So that was that was interesting. Both of those stints, one down in Central Florida, the other with the Elizabeth County Sheriff's Office out of the Gainesville area. And uh, in that case, we also got to work statewide. I could go over and do an internship with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and then go down to Miami and fly with U.S. Customs on air intercepts at night and go to the 1% bikers meetings and action teams in Daytona during bike week where you're working with agencies uh, across the United States, Canada and South America. Um, as they identify, collect intel, and arrest one percenters, um, you know, the motorcycle gangs. With all that, I came, when I graduated, uh, I went to work for Jay Byron's. And Jay Byron's was a state of Florida retailer out of Miami, used to be Jackson's and Byron's, and they combined and got real good experience as a district LP manager. We had some pretty good training and experience, and I got to build the, my area, Central Florida, from zero people, um, not including me, to um, a pretty big team. And I got the opportunity as Ross, uh, we got acquired by Ross Stores, my area. I was fortunately retained by Dave Whitney, the VP there, and he allowed me to grow the area and as we uh, expanded Ross stores across the Eastern United States. I ended up having everything from New York to Miami. And, and so uh, it was great experience as a practitioner in law enforcement in LP at the time uh, and did 10 years reserves as an army infantry officer as a scout and all. So all that helped me understand the real world a little bit and seeing people on their worst days. And then it was time to go into academia. So you had uh, you had all of the experience with um, law enforcement as well as uh, retail loss prevention. What made you decide to get your PhD? That was, to me, pretty interesting. I was at an ISC conference, and I think it was in Orlando. Back then, they used to have, if you'll remember, ISC East and ISC West. And so I walked by and, and went over to the security magazine booth at the time, or actually was called over by the editor. He said, you know, hey, you, you know, you're involved in retail. You've written some articles in security management, the, the ASIS, as is magazine. Would you be interested in doing a study? Is there a need for that? And I said, well, yeah, I think there definitely is. The only one we have is written by one of the big six accounting firms done by auditors. It's useful, but it's not really LP useful. And this is Bill Zalad, the editor at the time. Um, 
and uh, Ed, he has since passed away, but a fantastic, high energy, uh, a high idea, very creative guy. Um, and so he said, look, if you pull it together, I'll publish it. So I knew better than to try and do something like that on my own. And I reached out to Dr. Bart Weitz at the University of Florida. He was a newly hired chair of the marketing department and an uh, absolute world-renowned expert in retailing, ironically, and uh, started the new J.C. Penney Retail Center or Center for Retail Education and Research at UF. So I just reached out to him and told him who I was and what I was thinking about doing. And he said, well, come on up. So I drove up to Gainesville and I couldn't believe it. And so we sat and plotted and schemed for a couple of hours, came up with how we would do it. He helped me draft an instrument or a questionnaire the way an academic would, you know, to, to tease out the best information. We went back to Bill. Bill said, all right, I'm ready to publish. You need a sponsor. <laughs> so we were looking to get the, at that time, the EAS Manufacturers Association. So that was no-go sensormatic and checkpoint to see if they would sponsor we were trying to avoid a single company sponsor uh, for objectivity reasons that took months so finally sensormatic luciera and team there said look look we'll, we'll fund it what do you need and uh, the rest is history so the nrss the national retail security survey was born we had huge response we had we reached out and found through change store age a listing of, in every source we could come up with uh, headhunters recruiters helped us uh, and get these um, contact information mailed them out back then so that's how we got rolling well all these responses came in we had some grad students coding and entering the data. In the meantime, of course, I knew who uh, Dick Collinger was. He was now at the University of Florida. And so I reached out to him and said, hey, would you have interest in getting involved in this thing? You know, you guys are scientists. I'm not. Um, I'm a practitioner. And so that's how that came up. He said, sure, I'll reach in and dig in here and help analyze and write the report. So essentially, I wrote the report and, and uh, Dr. White's and Dr. Hollinger rewrote the report in the right way. So what happened was Dr. Hollinger, I then embarked on, let's do this annually. And then about two years into, I said, what if we could look at shopping centers? And he said, yes, that makes sense. We work with the International Council of Shopping Centers, ICSC, same process, wrote an instrument. We got a, uh, we found a, actually a handbook that listed every single shopping center and mall in the United States. Now, you know, call it a sampling frame. So it was amazing. So we had to mail them all out again, got a response, wrote a report. So we were off to the races and I could tell I really, really had a taste jack for research. Now, at this point, we're doing industry research, you know, and again, my dad and grandfather being physicians and me for whatever reason, reading their uh, journals. I, I like that. I wanted to play small ball, not just long ball, where we're measuring overall what people think is going on in the industry and in their business. But what about the individual problems and the individual responses? How, how do you do that? And so I talked a lot about Dr. Hollinger. In the meantime, I'd gone over to the UK and worked with uh, Professor Bamfield and the British Retail Consortium to get their NRSS, a similar uh, type project underway. So both Dr. Hollinger and Professor Banfield offered an opportunity to me that they would help me figure out a way to get into a graduate program that would be not a terminal master's, but would take it all the way through a, a doctorate, a PhD in criminology. So it was a matter of me, you know, going through all the gyrations with both and the choice between the University of Leicester in the UK and the University of Florida 
were pretty dramatic in that in the U.S. you needed to go six to seven years full-time and that's what you did. And uh, the U.K. you could maintain your career and me with a, a wife and two little babies, the choice was pretty easy. They offered that I would only need to be over there 10 to 20 days a year or 20 days a year and I could do coursework at the University of Central Florida and work with Dr. Weitz and Hollinger. They would be on my committee, uh, Dr. Weitz on my doctoral committee and learn how to do what I needed to do over those years. And it was a long six and a half years. How, uh, how were you making a living at that time? I mean, were you still working for Ross or were you uh, doing something else? Yes. Yet another, (laughs) another strange twist. So dialing it back just a little bit while I'm a regional, if you will, at Ross, Dave Whitney, the vice president came to me and said, look, I've got a couple options here, but what I want to talk to you about is one, uh, we can do a contract and and I'd have to do succession planning. Let's talk about you becoming a director or you need to move the West coast. Let's come fly you out. I did uh, and talked to the, to all the executives and that was looking good, except, um, on the domestic front where my significant other, she did not want to relocate to the West Coast particularly. And so the other option was that the senior uh, members of the board at Ross Stores also were significant investors or owners in uh, Egghead Software and Workplace, which was at that time later acquired by Staples. So uh, an Office Depot Max uh, Staples type store and Planet Music, which was uh, a really cool, large store format for music of all types. So they had at least those three chains and were coming up with more concepts and they wanted uh, somebody that could advise. So he said, look, what you do is one, you can maintain your job, but two, see if you can help them as a consultant and set up operations and maybe even help them run it part-time for a while. So what happened was that later grew where we started helping other retailers and we started that LP specialist and Ross stores owned it. And so I was doing both. And then at one point, because it grew, they put me over and said, okay, you don't have to do the field part anymore. You can do the LP specialist part full-time. And so that's Jack, how that came about. So when the educational part came for me to go and learn to be trained as a scientist, I had income from that. And also the Israeli group, ICTS, who are the global leaders in aviation, airline security, they purchased 80% of LPS, Los Vincent Specialist. And that allowed me to have a little bit of income and do that work while I was uh, doing all my training for a doctorate. So at some point you got your degree and you were doing research more or less full time. How and why did the Loss Prevention Research Council come into being? It was, that was um, at a transition point because the Israelis were working all around the world. And I got to go to Brazil and so on with them. But some of the because of what I was doing with the National Retail Security Survey and my education and learning how to be a researcher, I decided, look, I think I would rather instead of being a consultant or, or even a practitioner right this minute, I would like to go into research. And so I was at I had written more and more articles with LP Magazine and, uh, and with and that's at this point it wasn't LP Magazine, it was still security management um, magazine that we were, that I was writing articles for. Then I had the opportunity with King Rogers came to me and he said, you know, I'd put up my first book, Retail Security and Loss Prevention, first edition. And so King Rogers said, hey, I read your book. He saw me at, a, I, I believe, the predecessor to Rila, right? It was Emra at that time and said, I want to buy those books. I want to do a project with you. And so he flew me up to Minneapolis. We came up with an idea. 
I went back down to Florida. He assigned me to work with his DAPTL, his district asset protection team leader out of central Florida. And what my plan was is to interview at least 100 active shoplifting offenders who are hitting Target and other store, similar stores, uh, Walmart included. And I would have, a, I had a systematic questionnaire instrument, we call it, to learn wh- why do they target certain items, certain types of stores, supermarkets versus C-store or department store? Why do they target certain brands within a type of store and certain locations and things like that? And what do they notice and respond to as far as protective technology and tactics? And so I was planning the details with the Daptil in Orlando, somebody that most people in retail are familiar with, Marvin Ellison, now CEO at Lowe's Home Improvement. So Marvin was the Daptil. He and I worked it out when his team would catch, apprehend, detain a shoplifter uh, that met certain criteria, then I would criteria, then I would try and race over to that location and interview them or get some information and they could contact me. And so I interviewed about 108 systematically, uh, probably only less than a third of those were actually apprehended. The others were referred to me. We call it snowball sampling by the, the apprehended offenders. I went and interviewed all these people extensively, collected all the data, came up with results. King was very thrilled and he and I were invited by NRF, NRMA, it may have been at that time in 2000 in Orlando, their annual NRF conference to present a as the general session, the results and the implications. And King walked around the room with a microphone and interviewed people while I was trying to put the material out and he got questions from the group. And so that is the long answer to your short question, Jack, that that spawned because of King Rogers, his idea, he called the call to action to everybody was, give me your business card, let's form this. Nine other major chains, uh, Keith White at Gap, and Dan Doyle at Bells and, you know, Bill Titus at Office Max and, you know, Ed Wolf at the Home Depot and, of course, King and then, you know, the Walmart team and so on. They came together. We had a meeting on campus. And by that time, I was a research associate at UF, not a full-time faculty. We came together, planned what is LPRC, what's it look like, and boom, in, in 2000, that's what happened. Now, for those that may not know King Rogers, King, at the time, King Rogers was the vice president of LP at Target, correct? He was the VP of Assets Protection, yes, King Roger at Target at that time. All right, so here we are now in the year 2000. Uh, there is uh, an organization called the Loss Prevention Research Council, the LPRC, and you've got a uh, small number of retailers who have decided that they want to come together to do research kind of give the a summary of the mission that this group came up with for the LPRC. Yes. Well, there was a, okay, good. There was a big movement in medicine starting in the fifties called evidence-based practice, starting to filter into law enforcement, spreading pretty rapidly in education. But in our area, it really was not a term of uh, our profession used in our industry. So that just meant that we have a logic model and then we're going to collect evidence and uh, we're going to do it systematically. We're going to look at options and we're going to test them rigorously. So we talked about evidence-based practice a lot and what that might do, particularly particularly because of uh, life safety issues that LPAP, as you know, are um, in charge of and that coming from all the issues that we have with uh, violent crime uh, or property crime that turns violent for whatever reason. Uh, They felt like that was very critical to have that 
And so the mission then became uh, using research to improve practice. In this case of a membership, they decided to make it a council that everybody would become a member. They would pay an annual membership that would fund the organization and start to build a team, which the team was me. We kind of joke about a laptop on a TV tray for the first, you know, eight years or nine years. But uh, and then we slowly started bringing team members as the group started to grow from the original 10 to 12, 14, 20. And then now uh, 65 to 70 uh, major retail chains. And so that was the genesis of the LPRC. And the mission was to support the, the decision makers initially, Jack. And so the number ones, the VPs or directors uh, and their number twos maybe were our uh, target audience and who was involved with us. And we did one research project a year later. It was suggested by John Voitilla while we were at our annual board of advisor meeting and right up there in the office max headquarters that Bill Titus and him suggested, let's go to one project per quarter where now we do 40 projects a year. So we're doing 10, 10 projects a quarter. That's how it came about. So you mentioned Bill Titus. Now, you know, I've been associated with the uh, LPRC pretty much well, not from the inception, but fairly early into the process when there was our first annual meetings were maybe 20 or 30 people. But it seems to me that Bill Titus played a significant part in the growth of the LPRC. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. He is somebody that pounds good practice and he gets execution. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to execute. And some people, I don't know that they always uh, understood that he was also is a very creative. He was born and raised in California. You know, he's He's, uh, he is that guy. So that combination of organization and efficiency, those skills, and as well as being creative, and then um, just determined to execute, uh, were good and powerful. So he said, look, here's the deal. You know, we need to either grow this thing or do something because it, what's going, what this organization is designed to do is what we all need. We desperately need research to support us you know, help us get better and help us sell our programs to the people that write the checks in the business. So he, and I said, well, that's great, Bill. Um, could you be the chair then, you know, and help me execute? And he said, I'm in. So we are probably Jack around 14 chains at that time. Bill came in, he organized, he flew himself and his top three people. He had Mark Stendy, VP uh, of Sears uh, AP and, you know, his uh, Mike Gray, who was over everything that wasn't that. And, um, and, and then uh, Gary Zamberletti, who was the VP over Kmart, those four would come into games. I think they came three times and we met and, you know, and went through over and over whiteboarded, whiteboarded and what our strategy would be and um, how we would execute this thing. And then Bill was got on the phone, got on email and just started at conferences going around to his colleagues, his co- counterparts and saying, look, you know, w- come on, we, you know, come on, just anecdote and, and, uh, and things like that. And King Rogers old idea of, you know, we don't want dumb and dumber going on here. We need to have smart learning circles going on that we're not just sharing ideas. Everybody's benchmarking and benchmarking with who, I mean, you don't know that what they're doing works or if it's the best way, or it may even be harmful. And so let's let's start to learn things the right way. And so Bill, he drove this thing. And every Friday we had a, a, a call meeting, myself and Bill, and we would go through an agenda. And you were there, Jack, as a BOA. You see, he's got an agenda. We're going through it. We're going to execute. 
So that's that's what grew us from probably the 14 uh, retailer members. We added solution partners. We're now at about 75, 80. And then manufacturers, we probably got a half a dozen of the PNGs and Duracell, you know, Bacardi's, Cody's and so on of the world that are fantastic. So we've got this big 160 community. He drove us from from 14 to probably about, I would say probably about 30 to 40 retail chains. And then uh, the rest is history. Reed, I recall that our very early annual meetings with the LPRC, I think one of the first ones was at Disney in Orlando. And that was with just a small number of people. Today, the uh, Impact Conference has hundreds of people there. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the uh, annual meeting? Yes, and you're right, Jack. It re- we started out as an intimate meeting of 40 to 60 people. The Walt Disney World Company, Walt Disney, hosted us uh, the first three events. You know, and by the way, the predecessor was called Brainstorm, and we had those in 95, 96, and 97, um, and we got uh, about 100. Uh, but we got uh, most of the major VPs, but that was then. And then when we started LPRC, though, later in two, 2000, we didn't have a conference for the first two years. So Walt Disney hosted them. As you mentioned, they were very intimate, very interactive, either in the Hall of Presidents or in some venue like that. Uh, it was really interesting. And then um, the retailers decided, look, let's start to host it ourselves. And so Sears Kmart, of course, hosted it at their uh, really nice facility up there south of Chicago. Uh, we probably got up to, I'm going to say, about 150 or so people. The Home Depot hosted it. We probably got up again in about 150 or more. And then... Uh, we went down to Office Depot Max. They had merged. Uh, no, I guess it was Office Depot before they merged. Uh, we probably pushed 200 or so. And then everybody kind of voted to start having it every year on campus because it's different. You're not in a hotel. You're not in a conference center. And they just like being in the this campus environment. As you well know, Jack, we have the students that are there. They volunteer and they wear the lab coats. And we try and set this atmosphere of research of discovery, uh, you know, and exploration and, and rigor in a neat environment. And so that we, and that when we have our sessions, we have 12 sessions every year for main stage and eight learning lab breakouts that by and large, what we're presenting is not just anecdote and there's nothing wrong with anecdote, but that's not something you want to rely on that it includes a practitioner, a research scientist, and then where it's where it makes sense, a solution partner, they're working together. They are now going through not just what they did, but why they did this, how they did this, how it was rigorously studied, and then what the results and implications are for practice. And, and it's really neat. As you know, Jack, too, every year we feature some sort of a fender panel. Um, we've had porch pirates and frauds. Uh, mostly shoplifters. We've had dishonest associates or employees, uh, team members as well. And it provides a way for the a researcher to talk to them and a practitioner, but then all the group can ask and answer questions in a unique way to learn more, gain more insight from the target audience of what we're doing, who we're trying to convince not to come to our place or not do something dishonest or crazy while they're there. And so you're right, it's now over 400 participants annually, and we've got a solution center where we try and stress what the technology, the solution is, how it works, what we call the mechanisms of action, and what zone of influence it fits into, what project or projects or working groups that uh, solution partner that's got their table, what they're involved in. So it's not a, a sort of an exhibit hall 
feel, but rather we go in, it's another learning environment that ties in with what we're seeing and moving around to the learning labs. Right now, we are in the midst of a pandemic of the coronavirus. Our world has changed significantly over the last several months and will probably continue to change for the next several months. Talk about what the LPRC has been doing during this past two months, and then also how you are changing the uh, annual meeting in October. Sure, absolutely, Jack. So, and you and I have conferred a little bit and tried to make sure that we were sharing good information for everybody. And I think we tried to have that same spirit as you and you know the magazine, the team there at LPM. But in this case, we have, you know, 65 plus chains. And so we try to divide those chains into six or eight chains and have what we call cluster calls. And then we had an agenda, but we all know we can flex off that and we want to. And so we did a series every two weeks of those cluster calls, trying to let them engage with each other. What are they experiencing? How are they adjusting? Now, bear in mind, we had kind of three types of retailers, right? We had those that just went dark. All stores, corporate office, regional offices, distribution centers, everything's down, closed. We've got those that are on the other end of the spectrum. They're going full board. We've got Family Dollar and Dollar General. We've got CVS, Wright and Walgreens. Of course, all the supermarket chains we work with from Publix and Kroger Company to Ahold and HEB and and on and on, Albertsons and so forth, price choppers. So they're going great guns uh, over here. Amazon's a member, eBay. Uh, and then we got those in the middle. They've got some curbside going on. They're trying to figure out how to come out REI and some of the apparel guys and, and so on. We also had Home Depot and Tractor Supply, Lowe's and all that were mostly open and going. And so we try to divide them into similar groups to have lessons learned and then mix them up a little bit too. And people like Walmart that were very active, um, they would, they, it was neat. They would get some of their, uh, uh, particularly one particular team member, she was amazing. And she would get on each of the calls to really help them all understand what they're seeing and learning in real time to get that out, Jack. So on our podcast, we changed crime science from one every two weeks an episode to three episodes a week, including a special COVID-19 episode where we're going through what's the science look like that's emerging and what are they saying and then what's practicing look like. And then Tony D'Onofrio is on there every week. We just did one this morning talking about U.S. and global retailing, how it's affecting consumer behavior and retailer behavior. And then uh, Tom, me and on there talking about the fraud that's risen and what these new schemes and scams look like each week and how they're evolving. And then we had Dr. Smithick on, who's the chair of the infectious disease department at UF Health and also a founding member of the Emerging Pathogens Institute, EPI, which is constantly they're cited on CNN and BBC and everybody else around the world. So he was came on and spent an hour really help us understand the disease and how it, you know, how to works and what the implications are. So I think, Jack, in a lot of ways, we, we put up a, stood up a landing page early on in April, and we would try and keep that and still do to this day, up to date every day with hopefully credible, good information, resources, white papers, PDFs, anything we can find. Uh, our research team, we've been doing research on masking, the best ways that we can find to preclude crime and using the mask in that way, as well as reduce intimidation. And then finally, to increase comfort and trust that the retail employees are masked, they're masked properly, they're cleaning, they're maintaining the distance to the extent that they can. They're not there to enforce, but reinforce, as we know. We're trying to minimize any 
uh, harmful confrontation. So anyway, uh, Jack, uh, so the response was research. We're doing R3, re- rapid response research right now on curbside. How do we do it more efficiently? How do we do it so we reduce infection? How do we do it so that we reduce uh, two-ton vehicle versus human contact? And that's already happened. How do we reduce the likelihood that somebody's come out with their new iPhone 11 and somebody comes and victimizes them? So we're working on all that smarter transactions and so forth. And that's all really great stuff. And lastly, we've got this year's uh, impact conference the first week of October. And there's been some changes made because of the uh, current situation. The board of advisors that we have, um, made up of about 20 or so VPs, yourself and, and other experts, advised early on, we're going forward one way or the other with impact. We decided in April that we would go full on as if this would be a virtual conference with the same 12 sessions that we would normally have. Let's have them recorded with iPhones or whatever's available the best we can. So there's good content, well done, find the best platform. But simultaneously have the door open, cracked open maybe, but that if those that we had maybe in person, we still maintain this today. If possible, can we do something that university would let us do, that the Gainesville City would let us do, and the whomever else authorities have a place that we'd have some physical engagement? But right now, it's going to be a virtual platform. It, registration's open at lpresearch.org, lpresearch.org. We've got record, you can imagine, registration already. For the first time, it's opened up to non-members, those that don't have skin in the game. It, it's going to do a couple things, and you know this, Jack. One, it's going to allow a lot more people to participate that want to engage in um, research-based learning. And it's going to hopefully expand that to all parts of an organization. You know, Walmart alone has maybe 14,000 AP people. They might send eight or 12 of them to impact. You can imagine now the difference there on that extreme. So it's going to allow us to do some things, but we may have a physical component. Strategy at impact, that's for the ones and twos. Right now, we're still on path to have a physical meeting for that with a virtual component. So we can adjust either way on that as well. Well, that's all great, uh, Reed. I really appreciate all the information you've passed along to our listeners. I would encourage anyone who's a retailer or a solution provider in the asset protection industry, find out more about the LPRC. I think you can find out information from lpresearch.org. Thanks again, Reed, for such informative conversation we've had today. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to say to our listeners? No, I think that's that's it, Jack. I appreciate this opportunity. Obviously, you know, I'm a huge fan of all that you Jim and all the team there have done at LP Magazine. It's just been an incredible, stable, uh, very credible and informative platform in different forms now. So now I'm a huge fan. And I think I would encourage everybody, you know, there's, let's try all of us, be included, not to exercise dogma, be open-minded, think about because you hear, let's have discussions, yes, but let's have informed discussions if we can. You know, let's introduce evidence and analysis, not just be activist about what our opinion is and how we should do something in AP or LP, but listen to other ideas and then maybe test those and compare those uh, rigorously and independently if you can. That would be it, Jack. I appreciate this opportunity. All right. Thanks so much, Reed, and uh, everyone stay safe and uh, stay tuned for our next podcast.